Welcome to Talking Underwater. Diving in. Drip, drop, drip, drop. Oh my god. <laughs> Who's editing this one? <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> okay. Dear Lord. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Underwater. On water. One podcast. I'm Lauren Delcello, Managing Editor for Water Quality Products. I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we kick off the episode with some good news regarding a wastewater reuse program for forest development in Egypt. We also explore the impacts of flooding and groundwater pumping in Jakarta, Indonesia. Finally, our interview this month is with Nathan Gardner-Andrews, Chief Advocacy Officer from the National Association for Clean Water Agencies on funding. More on that interview later. Uh, Let's start with some optimistic news to start off your new year. This news item I brought to the table today is actually from the Good News Network. Yes, that is a real website. The Egyptian National Program for the Safe Use of Treated Sewage Water for Afforestation is proving successful. The program creates sustainably managed commercial forests fed entirely by wastewater, notably the Serapium Forest in Egypt, which is the most prosperous of the country's 36 tracts of land undergoing the desertification combat program. So to make it to the forest, the water travels dozens of miles and then the wastewater arrives in microorganism populated underground vats where oxygen is fed to accelerate the bacterial purification process. A system of pipes then deposits the wastewater throughout the forest. The impacts of this program are multifold. To to start off, the forests are being developed as commercial forests that are economically viable. They also help with CO2 absorption in the atmosphere. And in terms of the water world, forest restoration can help and overtax drinking water system by both improving water quality and quantity. They can act as filters and sponges, storing water during wet seasons and releasing it during dry ones. This is interesting. Did you read the article? no, I, I didn't get a chance to read the whole article, but like here, just even that summary is really interesting. It is. Do you know, sorry, do you know how long the program's been going on? I do not. I think it's been going on for quite a while, though, because they have 36 tracts of land where yeah, this is um, under process so far. And the one that I highlighted is actually a 500-mile forest. And it's actually near a pretty populated city, so it's having impacts that are multifold in many different ways, especially on the groundwater table, which reading this article kind of took me back to a Q&A that I did in February 2019, which was with Suzanne Osmet from the World Resource Institute. And the Q&A was on her research on Sao Paulo forest restoration in South America. Um, I'll be sure to link that Q&A in the show notes so you all can check it out. But essentially, forest reservation has a huge impact on groundwater levels. So that's what really makes this piece one water to me is that they're using wastewater, treated wastewater, um, for forest restoration, which has an impact on their drinking water system, also would have an impact on the stormwater system because it will help hold the soil together by doing uh, de-desertification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
It's really cool. I, w- I wonder what the um, what like the discharge limits are for that water. Like what what quality levels are they mm-hmm. trying to hit with like BOD and COD and TSS and all of that? Just that I'm curious what those numbers are. Just like because I imagine they would change depending on the type of forestation that you're working with too. Because mm-hmm. different plants and different fauna are going to need different requirements and stuff like that. So be really cool to know a little more of the technical details on that but I'm sure this mm-hmm. article doesn't really provide that. No, but that's an interesting point too but because this program is in Egypt the kinds of plants that they're growing is eucalyptus teak mahogany mm-hmm. those aren't trees that necessarily would thrive in Chicago I would imagine mm-hmm. for example so it would be interested to see how that sort of program could be implemented in other areas yeah I mean, treated treated water, is, wastewater is certainly used in, like, California for irrigation purposes and mm-hmm. stuff like that, too. Um, it may not be for reforestation particularly, but it is used for irrigation, which is very similar. Um, so there are programs even throughout the U.S. that have that. Most notably, California is a big one on that front. So all that, what is that, direct non-potable use or indirect mm-hmm. non-potable use? And it'll be interesting to see if, Obviously, like you said, not those plants can't necessarily grow well in Chicago, but if, you know, countries that do have similar, you know, vegetation, try it as well with those and see what happens. It'd be cool to see if it has kind of a domino effect going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the tough part is getting a program like this to catch on and mm-hmm. also to get funding, which is the theme of today's interview, um, but to get funding for implementation of a program that uses treated wastewater, maybe because of the stigma around that terminology or... All right, Katie, you also brought some news to the table today? I did. So recently, Jakarta in Indonesia has experienced some severe flooding. Time magazine said that on New Year's Eve, the equivalent of 72,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools rained on Jakarta with 66 confirmed deaths, which is a crazy amount of water to be coming down on, on a single day. Um, and now some are calling on officials to do more. I read a... Um, Reuters article and the country director for Greenpeace India said that Indonesia has enough resources to deal with this, but leaders have never had consistency in implementing long-term plans for flood management. Um, I also learned that the city has more than 10 rivers flowing through it and 40% of it is lying below sea level. Currently, they have plans to prevent flooding um, by building dams and works on the city's largest river. And what I found most interesting about the article I read is that most residents and businesses in Jakarta rely on wells that drain underground aquifers for their water supplies, which causes the city to sink 5 to 10 centimeters a year. Um, So they have a lot of infrastructure issues going on, and it seems like the biggest issue is a delay in getting those started that can kind of help prevent some of the damage that's being done. So I just thought it was interesting that, you know, 5 to 10 centimeters a year is a big number. Oh, yeah, that is quite a bit. Well, and it makes me wonder, too, I mean, we, we hear about eroding coastlines for, like, Louisiana and, like, the Gulf Coast and stuff like that. And, like, this is kind of, feels kind of like a similar eroding coastline problem, but it's a sinking city. That's, that's terrifying. So we did not mean to have an international episode today, <laughs> but we are covering uh, stories across the gamut. So that's pretty cool that... We're mixing it up like this today. I think that this has a huge, huge, huge uh, impact on 
their groundwater levels. And I wonder what the relationship is between, so are the floodwaters helping to uh, restore sinking groundwater levels? Is it infiltrating into the ground or is it running off into the ocean? I would have to look more into that. I don't know the exact answer, but yeah, you're right. It would be interesting to see what it is. And I think that um, I'm sure information like that will come out as they start to recover and figure everything yeah. out. But. I wonder if they have other drinking water sources they can try mm-hmm. and tap as well, or if they've explored GI at all. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you're talking about this much water, too, the effect on um, the local like wastewater authorities and mm-hmm. water authorities is also yeah. going to be mm-hmm. a problem, too. Um, I'm sure that with this much, there's a ridiculous number, assuming that... Us, assuming that there is sanitary or combined sewers um, through the city, I would imagine that those were very overflowing. Um, right. And then you have to deal with the whole human waste component of that as well. Um, that's that's tough. And you've seen that firsthand, right, Bob, when you went to uh, visit Houston immediately mm-hmm. following Harvey and went to a wastewater treatment plant there? Yeah. What's interesting about it is that a lot of the a lot of the problems come from the storm sewer system, not so much the wastewater authority plant itself. Um, a lot of the, at least the, the the one that we visited, didn't run into problems at the plant itself. It managed to stay running and didn't mm-hmm. have overflows that it had to deal with and whatnot. But throughout the system, very clearly, there's like houses underwater and everything and. That, that was where most of the damage came from. The damage to the plant itself generally wasn't, um, wasn't a problem. Mm. So I'm wondering if that's the same situation there or if because of the, just the volume of water that it actually did make much greater impacts on the waiter, wastewater and water facilities there too. Everything's connected. Yeah. Definitely. So anyway, we wanted to move on to our interview now. Um, I had interviewed Nathan Gardner-Andrews. He's the Chief Advocacy Officer for the National Association of Clean Water Agencies, or NACWA. He talked to me a lot about funding as it relates to municipalities and to stormwater utilities and utilities in general, some of the challenges that they have to overcome, and what types of things are available to them so that they can overcome those funding challenges. So here's our interview with Nathan Gardner-Andrews. All right, and so we're here with Nathan Gardner-Andrews. He is General Counsel and Chief Advocacy Officer for NACWA, and we're going to talk to him a little bit about funding. Uh, thanks for being on the on the call today, Nathan. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so um, I guess starting from a broad perspective, what are some of the challenges that utilities are facing when it comes to funding in the current uh, political and, I guess, finance climate? Yeah, uh, well, it's the, the the age old adage where to begin. Um, <laughs> I, I think there are there are a number there are a number of challenges. I think the, the most pressing one that most utilities are looking at is um, the combination of aging infrastructure um, in many communities, uh, water and, and wastewater infrastructure that may be reaching the end of its um, design life, if if not well beyond that. Um, coupled with the reality that there is uh, simply not a lot of money coming from the uh, federal and state level uh, at this point in time to help with those challenges. And so uh, communities and utilities are really having to self-fund the need to not only 
uh, upgrade their their infrastructure and kind of get it back to a state of good repair. But then you have the continual accretion of new regulatory requirements, which in many cases may require the installation of new infrastructure, which of course is additional uh, imposes additional costs as well. So um, you really have this this vice almost um, that's that's challenging a lot of communities in terms of uh, aging infrastructure, need for new capital expenditures, and um, a, a rate base that is in, in some communities, particularly communities with higher levels of, of lower income populations, um, struggling to meet the, the rising costs and the rising rates that utilities are having to impose to to meet these uh, meet these funding challenges. Yeah, and I would imagine for some of the smaller systems too, knowing that there's a lot of small systems in the U.S., especially that the smaller a system is, the harder it becomes to find that capital to make those big changes and big upgrades. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it, it, it's it's kind of the old uh, argument of economies of scale. The larger your rate base is, the the broader you can um, spread those costs out across the rate base. But certainly, in smaller communities that have smaller populations, the the funding challenge is even more acute. And I think that's particularly true in parts of the country where perhaps these communities at one point had uh, manufacturing facilities or other industrial facilities that. In the past, may have you know, been large users of water, uh, and and so those uh, facilities help to to stabilize the rate base. But as you know, jobs have shifted, and many manufacturing uh, sectors in the United States have have lost jobs or closed facilities. That's that's only an added pressure for for those communities. Yeah. So, what are some mechanisms that are available to overcome funding challenges for utilities right now? Well, there are a number of different options that are out there. Obviously, the kind of the the long-standing, um, most well-known uh, funding uh, support from the federal government is through the Drinking Water State Revolving Fund and the Clean Water State Revolving Fund, and um, those funds continue to be critical uh, across the country. Many of our members use those funds. Um, the, uh, the Congress over the last few years has uh, kept that funding steady, uh, which is good. Uh, and in fact, uh, a few years ago, we actually saw a slight increase in, in those funding levels. So there is, I think, a recognition uh, nationally that those, those sources of, of funds are important, but it, it's also important to remember that those state revolving funds are essentially loan funds. So um, mm -hmm. Even though communities can access them at very low interest rates, those are loans that need to be paid back. They're not grants uh, in the form of, you know, the construction grant program that was around in the 1970s and 80s and really helped to build a lot of the infrastructure around the country uh, that today is is in need of rehabilitation. So, um, so the state revolving loan funds are certainly very important um, for communities that are in more rural parts of the country. The uh, United States Department of Agriculture has a significant amount of money in their uh, water and wastewater uh, assistance program that communities can access. Some of that money can be accessed as grants, so that can be uh, a valuable tool for smaller communities. Um, and then for the larger utilities, particularly in urban areas that uh, may have you know larger rate bases, uh, the municipal bond market can be an important source of funding uh, where the municipalities can go out and essentially issue municipal debt through the bond market to raise money for uh, for you know capital projects, but again, that is all money that ultimately has to be paid back over time with interest. And so, when you're looking around the country at, at many of the 
you know, significant rate increases, we're seeing a lot of that is being driven by the fact that utilities, big or small, are going are having to take out these loans um, to pay for these investments up front, and then you're seeing, you know, through the increasing rates over time, the effects of having to pay those loans back with interest. Yeah. So just diverging a little bit on there, you did mention um, the increasing rates and stuff. How are municipalities approaching that with their ratepayer bases? I imagine that the more funding becomes difficult to work with and having to get more bonds and stuff, the more rates will have to increase. Are are there is that a big topic of discussion among municipalities of how do we approach this subject with our ratepayers? Absolutely. And what we're seeing is I think a, a fundamental shift from many uh, utilities in terms of how they interact with their ratepayers. I think for for many many years, the kind of attitude among a lot of utilities was, you know, we keep our heads down, we do our job, we 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 stay out of the news because if we're in the news, it means something bad happened. Uh, and I think frankly, in a lot of communities, there, there just wasn't a real understanding of the role of the local water and wastewater utility and the services they provided. Um, that is now changing as I think utilities are recognizing they need to be much more uh, public facing with their citizens, really explain what they do, why they do it, the value they provide to the community, so that the public has an understanding of why these rate increases are necessary. And that doesn't necessarily mean that um, it's any easier for utilities to raise rates, but what we are seeing is utilities um, engaging more, whether it's through um, social media, through the press, um, you know, doing plant tours at their facilities, going out to local schools and talking to school children about, you know, the water cycle and, and, and what the utilities do. It, it's a, a broad-based attempt uh, to, to really educate the public about the, the value these utilities provide to their communities. And so when the need comes for rate increases, uh, the public at least has a better understanding of why the money is necessary and where it's going. Yeah, those value water talks are becoming more and more important, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think we're seeing more utilities who have the resources to do so actually hiring, you know, professional communications folks to come in house and, and help uh, message that. But, you know, there's obviously a broad swath of utilities that don't have the um, the resources to, to, to kind of hire those professional messengers. And so one of the things I know that, that NACWA is working on and a number of other water associations uh, within the sector is trying to put together resources and toolkits for uh, utilities to to help them with this messaging, um, because that's going to be a really really critical element moving forward. Yeah, yeah. So getting back onto the subject of like the um, I guess infrastructure and financing and stuff. Uh, there's things like the American Water America's Water Infrastructure Act and the Water Infrastructure Finance and Innovation Act um, and other similar kind of tools like that that exist at the federal level as well. Um, how do those play into funding and financing for municipalities, and um, what opportunities do they present? So I, I think that they're very helpful as kind of additional tools in the toolbox, if you will, from a funding perspective. We talked mm -hmm. a little bit about the state SRFs and the USDA grants, um, but you know the WIFIA program, while relatively new, has proven very popular. Um, again, it's more of a loan-based program, but it's another option for utilities to uh, get funding from the federal government for major projects. Um, uh, the American Water uh, Innovation Act, you know, it contains some authorizations for programs like a new uh, grant program for CSO and stormwater issues. 
Um, it's not a lot of money. It's I think it's around $200 million a year, uh, which which obviously is not going to go very far in terms of the needs that are out there, but it's something. Uh, it's it's you know another drop in the bucket, so to speak, in terms of of federal funding. Um, but the reality is that uh, in this current political climate and, and likely going forward, given the, the fiscal realities that, that the United States is facing, there is not going to be um, you know, a, another huge federal grants program. Um, mm-hmm. The infrastructure dollars going forward over the coming decades are really going to have to be developed uh, and raised at the local level. Um, which is unfortunately going to mean increasing rates for many utilities and communities around the country. That being said, um, NACWA believes that there is a role for the federal government to help with some of that, particularly you know, as rates are going up, the affordability issue becomes very, very central. And mm-hmm. in a lot of communities, you, know, you have that bottom 20 or 25 percent of households uh, who are in that low-income zone and these raising rate, rising rates are really putting stress on them. So one you know, policy proposal that NACWA is advancing is the concept of setting up a federal low-income water customer assistance program. And this is a concept that would be somewhat uh, modeled on the federal uh, LIHEAP program, which currently exists, where the federal government will help to subsidize heating costs and cooling costs for uh, households that are in that low-income bracket. Um, What Mm -hmm. we're trying to do is see if there's a role for the federal government to do something similar on the water side so that um, as rates continue to increase around the country, certainly in in many cities there are, you know, uh, uh, households that can frankly afford higher rates. Um, so to the extent that the rates go up, those households can, can, can pay higher rates because it's within their budget to do so. But for those lower income households, the notion of this new federal program is that the federal government would help cover uh, that rate increase for those lower households so that mm-hmm. the utilities can be empowered to continue to raise rates as they need to to meet their infrastructure needs while not worrying about putting increased financial pressure on those lowest income households. So that's a relatively new concept. That's out there. Um, there is bipartisan legislation that's been introduced in Congress to advance that concept, um, and we're going to continue pushing on that and hopefully try to make uh, some progress on that over the next few years to, to actually make a program like that a reality. Yeah. Well, that's really cool because I, I have heard a lot on water equity in the past couple of years. I think that that's become a bigger talking point, and that affordability aspect is a big, big part of that. Yeah, it's absolutely front and center. And and again, you know, recognizing that these dollars are going to have to be raised at the local level, um, we're trying to create a, a, a policy uh, approach that allows those who can may pay more to pay more as rates need to be raised, frankly, to, re- to reflect the true cost of service provided, but also mm-hmm. acknowledge that there is a segment of low-income households that cannot be put in a situation of having to choose between paying their water bill or paying their medicine bill or paying their water bill and paying their food bill. So if there is a role for the federal government to help offset those rate increases for that, that uh, you know, percentage of households um, uh, that are in the low-income zone, then we think that might be a win-win in terms of trying to address the affordability issue, but also giving utilities the, um, the financial flexibility to raise the rates they need to to meet their infrastructure investment needs. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about like drinking water and stuff like that, but um, stormwater also we recognize is becoming a bigger 
uh, conversation for utilities as well, especially with just increasing numbers of just increasing rainfall in general, more extreme uh, weather patterns to, to handle and manage. Um, what, what avenues are available when it comes specifically to stormwater? What, what, can, what have you heard on that front? Well, so all of the kind of existing federal funding programs, the SRFs, WIFIA, um, USDA grants, are available uh, for stormwater projects. So, so stormwater okay. projects are eligible for application to those programs. Um, I had mentioned the grant program that was created um, in the recent um, uh, legislation from Congress. That is a, 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 it's a CSO and stormwater grant program. So, uh, stormwater utilities would be would be eligible to access that money. Um, one of the things I would say with stormwater, though, that is kind of unique is whereas water and wastewater has traditionally been dealt with kind of under a dedicated utility in many communities, but the same is not true for stormwater. And if you look across the country, you kind of see a hodgepodge of how stormwater is managed. Um, in some places, it may be managed by uh, the local public works utility. In other places, it may be the Department of Transportation. Uh, in some places, it may be the water utility, um, but that's not uniform. Um, but a trend that we have certainly seen over the last you know, five or six years or so that I think is only going to increase is the notion of, of creating standalone stormwater utilities uh, for municipalities. And what cities and communities are finding is that by se setting up these standalone utilities, that then allows the utility to raise rates specifically for stormwater infrastructure. Now, the challenge there, of course, is that if you're creating a new utility just for stormwater, that is going to charge rates. That's, of course, on top of your existing water and wastewater rates. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're you're dipping into the same pocket, so to speak, uh, of your rate payer to fund these stormwater projects. Um, the flip side, though, is that by setting up these utilities, um, it's easier, uh, our, our experience has been, uh, and what we're seeing is that it's easier to explain to the public um, the need for these stormwater services if you have a standalone utility. And these utilities then themselves can be eligible for uh, you know applying for some of these federal grant programs uh, you know or or going to the municipal bond market etc. So I think that these utilities are a way to 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 more directly address the unique challenges that stormwater provides and and create a dedicated source of funding to address them as opposed to the old way where uh, you know in a lot of communities funding for stormwater projects was kind of what, whatever was left over after the other major infrastructure sectors were addressed. Um, so I think that trend is a positive one, uh, and I think that's something we're going to continue to see, but it, it will add, uh, in many cases, you know, another layer of rates uh, on top of the existing uh, services in order to address these issues. Yeah, and one of the things that I feel like I hear a lot when it comes to stormwater is, um, community involvement in those projects, especially with like rain gardens and um, new parks and stuff like that, and getting the community to be the one that kind of like cares for it over time, so the maintenance is kind of handled on a volunteer basis, can be a really effective tool as well. That's absolutely true, and it's also, to be very you know honest, uh, uh, I don't want to say easier, but to the extent people are actually seeing physically the results of the investment, whether it's through rain gardens or swales or green streets or other types of investments, um, it, 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 it 
they better understand what their money is going towards and in many cases may be more willing to pay those fees because they're actually seeing the tangible benefits. You know, one of the biggest challenges historically with water infrastructure is that it's buried. It's it's the proverbial out of sight and out of mind. And so when you're asking people to spend money to improve pipes underground that they're never going to see, um, that's a, a little bit of a harder sell sometimes than, as you said, in a stormwater context where a lot of the, particularly the green infrastructure and the low impact development infrastructure can be constructed, constructed above ground. Um, people can see it, it benefits them, it beautifies their neighborhood. Uh, and so it, it's a much more tangible benefit for, for the, you know, the money that they're, they're paying in rates. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, thanks so much, Nathan. I, I do appreciate you taking the time. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share on the topics of funding or, uh, ways that uh, people can get some more information on these, these subjects that we talked about? Uh, the only thing I would say is just, you know, uh, remind folks that this is an election year and to the extent that, uh, you know, there are candidates out there who are talking about water, encourage them to continue to do that. If candidates are not talking about water, encourage them to do that. But um, I think we really need to continue to make a concerted push across this country for water and water infrastructure in particular to be part of the national political discussion, not just roads and bridges or airports or broadband. I mean, all those things are clearly important, um, but we need to make sure that water is central in that conversation as well. And that's only going to happen if our elected leaders hear from us and know that it's a priority for us as voters. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nathan, and uh, thank we appreciate your time. Thank you. So thanks again, Nathan, for that interview. Covered a lot of ground, I feel like, in a yeah, very definitely. short amount of time. Um, but yeah, thanks again for that. It, I Really informative and um, awesome conversation points uh, that the conversation kind of steered toward how funding impacts individual ratepayers as well was really interesting to me. And just kind of understanding the the mentality of a utility that has to go to their rate payers and say, we actually need to increase our rates because we have to pull out a bond so that we can make this change so that we can make sure that the water is better for you or the wastewater is going to work, wastewater treatment plant is going to work, or the sewer system is going to operate and function properly or stop CSOs or whatever. Um, that was an interesting part, tangent, I guess, of that conversation that I hadn't really thought about until he had mentioned that that aspect so yeah I thought the communications element of that was really interesting as well he talked about how they're seeing a shift in fundamental a fundamental shift in utilities from how they interact with their ratepayers how they do more public outreach now mm -hmm. than ever before in a diverse array of methods including social media going into schools um, being very active in the press and even going so far as to hire communication specialists, which from my understanding of what he was saying is this is this is a bit of a different shift than how things had been before. So it'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see and follow along how that continues to have impacts with the larger water infrastructure agenda as a whole, which is what he brought it to at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the idea also of um, utilities creating their own standalone stormwater one is yeah. also interesting. I was just going to say that, and one of my state of industry sources was saying the same. He was saying, you know, like, the EPA is really good about awarding grants for stormwater projects, but the problem is there's been such an increase that they're kind of at their limit. And so a lot of cities and municipalities are implementing stormwater 
utility fees so that they can fund these projects. Um, I actually have an article about it in our February issue. Um, mm -hmm. St. Petersburg in Florida just kind of restructured their stormwater utility fees, so check that out for more information. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what great timing to have I this know. interview with that. <laughs> <laughs> so that concludes our episode this month. General housekeeping, well, a little more special housekeeping. First, Water and Waste Digest, Young Professionals nominations are open, and we are accepting nominations right now. You can get that nomination form by visiting bit.ly slash nomination. I know it's kind of long, but it'll get you there. You can also find that on our website if you just go there and search around. Um, but the bit.ly is definitely way easier and um, quicker to access. We will also be traveling for some shows soon, but Katie, you had the Webinar Fest too? Yes, yeah, so registration is now open for the SWS Webinar Fest that will take place April 28th through 30th. Um, for the lineup and more information and to register, visit www.swswebinarfest.com. Um, yeah, and like I said, it's April 20th through 30th and you can watch from your home or office wherever you're comfortable. Awesome, and then we were also booking all of our travel here for quarter one and we wanna let you know a little bit about where we will be. So Lauren, did you want to kick that off? Yeah, absolutely. So Q1 this year, I've got a pretty hectic travel schedule. And if any of our listeners are at the same events, I'd love if you'd come and introduce yourself. And I hope to bring some insights back. In the end of February, I'm going to be in California with Bob, actually, at the AWWA WEF Young Professional Summit. We've never attended before and are really looking forward to learning. At the beginning of March, I'll be at the Water Quality Association DC fly-in. And then at the beginning of April, of course, I'll be at the Water Quality Association convention exposition. So looking forward to meeting you all there. Yeah, and I, like Lauren said, will also be at the AWWA WEF Young Professional Summit in February. I will also be at WET in Indianapolis the week after that, I believe, or before it. It might be before it. Um, in, in, in either case, I, I have two travel weeks in February, so I'll be at WET and then the Young Professional Summit. And then in March, I am going to WaterCon. So if you are in the Illinois area or you're going to WaterCon in Springfield, Illinois, I will be there as well. That'll be an interesting show for me because I've never attended, and it's also in my hometown. So if you're looking for food recommendations, drop me a line. I got a lot of places I can tell you about. <laughs> Definitely credible. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I, starting next week, I will be at the last couple of days of IBS in Las Vegas. And then in February, I will be at the IECA conference. And then in March, I will be at the WEF Stormwater Symposium. Um, and it'll be my first time at all of these shows. So come say hi. I'm excited to attend all of them and learn some more. Awesome. You'll be well, busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So as always, uh, if you liked our podcast, uh, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and whatnot. And if you can, drop us a review. That'll help out as well. And if you want to get in touch with us or join a conversation, you can reach us by emailing talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com or find our group on Facebook, and you can start conversations there as well. And that's that. Thanks all for listening. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks. Bye.